I was with my abusive partner for 18 years and I finally built up the courage to leave him. And during a six-week period, um, he bombarded me with texts, phone calls. He was outside my place of work, opposite me, sat in his vehicle. And I came home from work the one day and all my clothes had, had, had been bleached. But this wasn't recognised by myself as stalking and the police didn't recognise it as stalking either. My perception of a stalker at the time was somebody, you know, that be hiding in bushes, pinching your underwear off the line. I didn't think, you know, somebody who didn't know, I didn't think it was um, going to be somebody you were trying to break up with, you know, an ex-partner. Um, and I think by the time I reported it, I was in it quite deep because I tried to manage it myself, you know, pacify him in, in the beginning, you know, sending little messages back, you know, listen, it's over, you know, just got to leave me alone, trying to sort of manage it. But before I knew it then, I was too deep then because it went beyond that then. So this happened, like I said, a, a six-week period of, of, of going through that with, with the... To it was total harassment, you know, when you look at it now, 40 phone calls a day and texts, and it resulted in him on the 19th of August 2011 coming into my place of work, which was a hairdresser's, armed with a sawn-off shotgun. There was a battle in the shop and he ended up shooting me. And then after he shot me, he battered me. He went off and hung himself and then I was in hospital for almost six weeks and I came out of hospital on Friday, on the Friday the 23rd of September and my 16-year-old son committed suicide on the 26th of September. Hey lovely listeners and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now I'm continuing with my series preventing murder in slow motion. And I'm really happy to welcome a very special guest into the intelligence cell, Rachel Williams. Rachel is an incredible survivor and campaigner, and you'll hear her introduce herself in the episode. I've been working with Rachel for a number of years now on the Serial Domestic Abuser and Stalker Register campaign, amongst other important campaigns and work. Rachel is an absolute warrior, and you're going to hear firsthand how she survived a near-lethal attack by Darren Williams, against all odds, due to her own quick thinking and determination. And you're also going to hear what was going on in the relationship before that. Are you noticing any similarities between Zoe and Rachel right from the start? Any patterns? Well, keep listening, and let me know what jumps out at you and you're going to hear Rachel's story in three parts. Now before we dive in, here's my usual heads up and trigger warning right before we get into the episode, because these episodes are not an easy listen. They may well be triggering, and they will be distressing. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory, and so listener discretion is advised. Okay, so with that having been said, Let's jump right into part one with the amazing Rachel Williams. Hi there, Rachel. It's great to see you and thank you for coming on to Crime Analyst. Lovely to be here finally, Laura. <laughs> I know we've spoken many, many times and I've always wanted to jump on and get you on the podcast. So we've been working together on campaign work and various other things which we talk to people about. But tell my listeners who you are. Give a little introduction. Okay, so my name's Rachel Williams. Um, I think I would say I'm a campaigner, 
um, and an advocate for survivors, victims of survivors of domestic abuse and violence, and also a survivor of um, domestic abuse and an attempted murder. And I love that you start with survivor, campaigner, all positive things, because actually there is life after something horrific happens in your life. And you really are, to me, testament of that, of using an experience that can change the world, actually, and change things for the better to help other people. So before we get into all the campaign work that you're doing and your fantastic organisation as well, perhaps explain a little bit where you were in your life when you met Darren Williams, because it it was some time ago, wasn't it? Yeah, so um, I was a single mum to Josh, who was two. I was 21 when I met Darren, and he was six years older than than myself. You know, sort of struggling as a single mum, you know, um, just sort of like getting on with life. And then I met Darren through his sister, who was, in fact, um, a neighbour who lived across the road. So that is how I met Darren. Now, most of my listeners will probably be able to tell you've got a Welsh accent. So maybe locate yourself as well. A beautiful yeah. Welsh accent, I, I should say. So you grew up in Wales. Where, whereabouts? So that is in the, the United Kingdom. So literally down to the left of the map is a big, big uh, geographical area called Wales. So I'm in South Wales. Um, funny enough, we all got different accents. So North Walians got a different accent to myself uh, and West Walians as well. Um, so, yeah. They may not be able to locate where you're from. I often get over here that I'm from Australia. Someone recently said Scotland. So it's not oh always goodness. easy to, yes, to, to locate <laughs> ac- accents. But you grew up in Wales and you left school at 16, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I was um, uh, one of the girls in school, you know, that was always around uh, Smoker's Corner hanging around with the boys, a uh, little bit of a rebel, sort of always um, up for a laugh. Truanted quite a lot in the last couple of years of school because I found it very boring, not academically sort of that way. Um, I'm more practical. So, yeah, and I did have quite a good good network of friends uh, growing up in school, you know, and being in school. So, Rachel, tell me about your neighbour introducing you to Darren. So um, it was through through a neighbour who happened to be Darren's sister and um, I can remember him going over to, to her house for coffee and um, in, in walks Darren and I can remember thinking, oh my goodness, he's, he's a big guy because he was six foot seven and 22 stone. I'm not sure what that would be in pounds, you know, but a 60 inch chest, he was a bodybuilder. So that'll sort of give you some sort of size to, to Darren um you know and when I first met him he he was very pleasant and quite charming and, and and a good laugh as well so every time I seemed to bump into him over Lisa's uh, that's his sister you know he was a good laugh and that that is something I like you know I like somebody with a sense of humor yeah so that's where it all began Laura so you had good banter together and I, I think it's important that you mention actually how big he was because he was absolutely huge. I mean, six foot seven, you know, over 20 stone. We're talking about a, a really big guy. And describe your physical characteristics at the time. Yeah, so I'm five foot eight. And at the time of meeting Darren, I was probably about nine and a half stone. 
So in comparison to Darren, you know, I was a waif um, and some of the, the photographs that are out there in the media, you know, he's there with his arm around me and I am literally stood like a pencil next to him. Yeah, I mean, that struck me straight away when I saw pictures of you. You just look so tiny and demure and he's just so big in stature. But actually, as you say, in the pictures, there's a very possessive, you know, the arm around you all the time, holding you and pulling you in, even just from the picture alone. I remember us talking about some of them, that it really does paint a a picture of what was going on in the relationship. So obviously you meet Darren a few times and it's through his sister and there's good banter, you have a laugh with him, and you're getting attention from a guy who seems to be a great guy from what you can see. So explain, when did you first start going out on dates? Or or did you ever go on dates? Was it more just you were meeting, you know, and each time you just sort of got to know each other a little bit more? Yeah, I can't remember going out on dates as such. That's quite funny you've mentioned that because nobody's ever asked me that. And so thinking back, I can't can't remember going out to a nightclub or anything like that with Darren. He was a doorman, so he worked the doors in in our town. Um, But we did sort of go out on walks. You know, he'd pick me up in his car um, and we might go to a country pub for a meal but he never took me in in the beginning to uh to any sort of um crowded pubs or anything it was it was quite sort of intense looking back on it now it was quite intense it was just tended to be the two of us yeah and he would come come for a meal I'd cook a meal and you know we'd sort of sit for hours and hours talking till like four or five o'clock in the morning um but yeah that's quite funny you've said that Yeah, it's always interesting to go back to when someone first met and whether there was a sort of a dating scenario or whether things just accelerated on their own. And sometimes it can be a whirlwind that things just move along on their own. There are other people present. You're bumping into each other because you live in proximity or other times it might be that, yes, there are specific dates and it's whirlwind, love bombing and all all the other things that go with that. But it sounded like you did get to know each other, and he obviously knew that you had a little one as well. What what was his feelings about meeting your little one at the time, and when did you introduce? Um, So it it was fairly soon into the relationship. So Josh was two, um, and I can remember myself and Darren, we met on March the 9th. And um, when Easter popped along, which would have either been uh, the end of March or, or in April, um, depending where it fell in the calendar. But I can remember Darren bringing Josh Easter eggs. Um, and I thought, oh, that was quite sweet, you know. Um, so, so yeah, he, he seemed to be fine, uh, you know, towards Josh and around Josh. And I think for me, Darren, you know, we'd sit and talk for hours. And I mean, it's been well documented in in all the reports, you know. Um, but Darren shared with me, he was brought up in a violent household and um, his brother had committed suicide uh, four years prior to us meeting. So, you know, I sort of sort of felt quite sorry for him as well. Um, you know, when he was offloading, you know, stuff to me, what had gone on in his life, I did feel quite sorry for him. Which again is quite interesting because the vulnerability, I'll call it vulnerability, when someone shares that and the fact that his brother had taken his own life and that there was serious domestic abuse in in his family life and 
he ended up sort of being the brother that got all the other children out the house when it was really scary. And obviously that had an impact on him. But it's interesting that the sympathy factor, that you feel the compassion, the empathy, you feel that way towards him and and sort of protective and the fact that he shared that changes the balance in the relationship because it's like an opening up, isn't it? That he's the vulnerable one. He's the one that's been abused. And so it, you then can become the strong one and the one that if you had a good family life, you know, when none of those things touched you and therefore you do feel sorry for that person and, and you want to look out for them and you feel that there's a different change in the relationship where you might be the stronger one emotionally not necessarily physically, because he was obviously a very big guy, but emotionally and in terms of mental toughness. Yeah, and, and that was something Darren said to me over the years, you know, you are mentally stronger than I'll ever be. Um, and he shared with me that he had a breakdown. And Darren was all, it's quite funny, because when Darren showed me photos of him when he was younger, uh, he looked like Rodney off Only Fools and Horses. Um, and some of your listeners will know who Rodney is off Only Fools and Horses. Real tall, lanky guy uh, not much to him and that's who he looked like I mean Darren he lived on his he said he was a nervous child he suffered with asthma um, he lived on his nerves uh, he um, had been in and out of St Caddick's which is a mental hospital with, with a breakdown uh, when his previous girlfriend had finished with him so we had a lot going on in his life and you know I, that on top of you know being brought up as they all were, you know, in that violent household. And his brother committed suicide. And I think Darren carried quite a bit of guilt because his bro- he told me that his brother actually committed suicide with Darren's medication, which uh, Darren found had as well. Um, so I think there was a lot going on in his head. And yes, I certainly felt, you know, empathy towards him. And I think that's also very interesting that... A, he shares all of that, but B, it's such a different upbringing to your own where, and I've met your mum and not, no family's perfect, but you had a very loving environment that you grew up in. And yes, you were a bit of a naughty, rebellious teenager, but actually your upbringing was so different to his that I remember you saying to me that all the time he would say that you were the strong one and that you felt that sort of protectiveness and feeling so empathetic towards someone else. And you don't see those things as red flags, as warning signs. And I think oftentimes when I talk to survivors and even when I talk to victims, oftentimes they push their own needs down because they think about somebody else's upbringing and how terrible that was. And therefore they're always attentive to that and not to things that are making them feel bad or are having a negative impact on them. And they certainly don't see them as red flags or warning signs. No, that's right. I mean, what I, if, I, if only I knew then what I know now, you know, the red flags were flying, you know, flying heavily over the relationship really from early on. Um, so, yeah. What was the first indication for you where maybe things changed or you thought... Uh, I'm uncomfortable about that. I think there was, uh, from from recall, and you have got a book, and I will put your book in the show notes called The Devil at Home. So I highly recommend that everybody reads it because it, it is a page turner. And I know it's your life, Rachel, but it does read, you know, mm. as a page turner where you can't put it down. And and you do describe a time in Black Cash Park where you've been, com- you're coming back from a party, I think, 
Can you explain what happened? Yeah. So I'd gone to a friend's barbecue. Um, it was for her 21st and it was in the May. So bear in mind, I'd only been going out with Darren for two months. And we'd gone to this party. Um, it was only like a family barbecue with a few friends. And Alex, my friend, had made a, a comment of an about an ex-boyfriend um, and nothing was said. And I'd had a few to drink and Darren probably might have had a couple of lagers. He wasn't a big drinker. And we were walking home, um, you know, close to midnight. So it was quite, quite a dark, more dark evening. It was, you know, that sort of time of night. And we were walking through a park um, and the only light we had was the moonlight. And I can remember Darren saying something, making a comment about an ex, this ex-boyfriend that Alex had brought up. And I turned around and said, that was my past. It's none of your business. And the next thing then I can remember falling uh, head first in a bunch of stinging nettles, which was down an embankment, almost like a bit of a ream at the bottom of it. Um, and I wasn't sure whether I was pushed or whether I'd slipped. So I put my hand up, expecting Darren to be there to pull me up, saying, oh, my goodness, you are right. But there was no hand. And so I sort of scuttled up and then started walking, heading towards home. And Darren was walking in front and I was almost walking behind like a wounded puppy. Still couldn't quite get my head around the fact whether I'd slipped or was pushed. Um, and, you know, having a few to drink as well is hard to sort of get your head around it. But he later confessed that he did push me. And it was because he was jealous um, and he was so sorry, you know, it was just that he knew he was starting to fall in love with me and it was a bit of jealousy and it wouldn't happen again. Um, you know, I, and I took that in. So, yeah. Well, you took it at face value that he was sorry and it wouldn't happen again. And I think oftentimes, certainly when I talk to survivors and victims, they do say things like, I wasn't sure whether I fell or if I was pushed. And it can be very confusing, particularly if somebody doesn't offer up an, an, another narrative to you or say that they're sorry that it was them, that there's this constant, was that me or was that them? But he did apologise. And, and what happened thereafter? Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island, where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. 
With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want a wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. So, you know, everything was fine. He apologised. I think he might have even bought me a bunch of flowers, you know, uh, really, really apologetic. And that was that. And then, you know, over the months, there were little outbursts, nothing, you know, nothing that I really thought, oh, my goodness, because I think we can all, we've all got the capacity to have a little wobbler now and again, you know, and, and the heated arguments. And then... The next thing really I can sort of remember, because it was almost like a whirlwind, was Darren was moving in with me and I was actually pregnant with Jack. So that was um, all sort of happened now when I look, you know, it escalated really quickly. Um, Yeah. And what happened when you were together with, well, when you were pregnant? Because I remember you talking specifically about one particular time when you were pregnant and he put his hands around your neck, which we would call strangulation now, and is a very high-risk behaviour, a red flag, and we know that it's a high-risk factor to serious harm and femicide, so a huge red flag. What Can you remember what happened at the time? Yeah, so we'd had a row downstairs, and I can remember storming up the stairs and I was seven months pregnant at the time and I could hear Darren then because obviously he wasn't light on his feet you know sort of do, 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 up the stairs and I was in the bedroom and he came and I was on round the side of my bed next to the wardrobe so I was sort of penned in and he came around and he was pointing his finger in my face um, and I can't even remember what the argument was about and obviously I answered back and at that point then I I, he put his hands around my neck and he'd lifted me off the floor by my throat. And he told me later that he let me go because my lips had turned blue. Um, and after this incident, then he just literally fell on the floor to his knees and absolutely cried like a baby. Thank God. I mean, it, it's just it's terrifying. It, it really is. And just terrorizing as well there's nothing more frightening I mean you being held up by your neck but you're pregnant as well and the risk to your baby well that could have ended up in a fatality of you and your baby 
I mean, just horrific, Rachel. And and I know that he did turn around and say that he was sorry yet again and dissolved into tears. And um, I think he might may have even talked about suicide at that point. Did he threaten suicide or, or bring it up? And again, which flips the script, because then you start thinking about that other person and not about what's been done to you. Yeah, so straight away he was sorry and apologetic and, you know, I don't know what happened, you know, and, you know, uh, the, the thing of, you know, I you know, this this is not sort of me. And and all I kept, I kept thinking about was, you know, he was brought up in this violent household. He witnessed his mum being beaten. He's not going to be like that, you know. This is this is totally out of character. And I, I absolutely totally believed it. And that was really the starting point, really, for me, of the abuse and I think the the next outburst I can remember was was after I'd had Jack um and Jack was probably about maybe two years old and I can remember an a, another argument and he had me in the kitchen by my hair and he actually swung me around the kitchen and I'll never forget it. I had a pair of loafers on and they had like a rubber sole. And where he swung me round in the carpet, there was like a half moon circle from my shoes. And as I glanced to the door, Jack was in the bathroom poking his head round. And like I said, he was about two. My goodness. I mean, not just a, a risk to you, but uh, to Jack as well growing up. And sadly, history was repeating itself. I think it's interesting that you said because you knew it had happened to him and his mum, therefore you didn't think that he would repeat the pattern. But unfortunately he did. And it seemed to me that it was always followed by, I'm sorry, and you're the strongest person in the world, I adore you, and all these proclamations and declarations that must have been you know, balanced out the the abuse and the violence because it persuaded you each time that he was going to change. So there must have been something about him that you thought he was going to try and be different for, for you to stay. And I think a lot of people don't understand why and how someone like Darren entraps a woman. And, you know, just to pick up on a point that you said before, you said his the previous girlfriend had finished with him or ended the relationship well, his narrative was that she cheated on him. But if this is how he behaves to women, and you had many years of experiencing this, then we know there's a very strong likelihood that he behaved like this in other relationships too. Yeah, and I know he did now. I, I, I have found out that his previous girlfriend had an injunction on him because of his behaviour. Um, and she's also uh, messaged me privately. So I've had this conversation with her. But for, for me, you know, when Darren was was so apologetic and crying and knowing what he witnessed as a boy being taken to different women's houses looking for his father, you know, the stories that he told me and then him saying to me, you know, I don't know why I'm behaving like this. You know, uh, you don't deserve it. You know, I'm going to go to the doctors. I'm going to get some counselling, you know. So he's almost like admitting to me that he knows he's got a problem um, and he's going to fix it. So I'm hanging on to the to the belief that he is going to fix this problem. You know, I was a single mum with Josh and I had Jack. And the last thing I wanted to do then was to break up, you know, this family to be a single mum again. And that was the last thing I wanted. So I clung on to every bit of hope 
Did he know that that was something that you worried about, that you didn't want to be a single mum again? Was that anything that you ever shared with him? Um, I can't really say that I did. Um, you know, I, I, was, I was always a bit of a worrier, worried about many, making sure the bills are paid, you know, and being a single mum, that I'd always document everything down, you know, this is the, the gas, this is the electric, this is the water. I was very precise with with my many because I had to be because I was a single parent so everything had to stretch and then when Darren come along and obviously you've got another income um and then other stuff come along with Darren and there was more income you know it was it was sort of a harder thing to do then to get out of yeah and sometimes there was peace there wasn't there I mean he was Parting at the weekends, when you were first with him, he would go out parting at the weekends and he was a doorman. So you would have quiet time on your own. And it felt like a, an ideal relationship in many senses. And then, you know, you would spend time together. And you originally said that actually he made you feel safe, secure and protected. And that yeah. changed. He, he almost made me feel like that I, I needed to be protected. Um, I can remember him saying, you know, uptown, you know, all these blokes are uptown for one thing. They're always looking, you know, for a woman just to sleep with and dump, you know, and, and you know, you're different to all the other slags. That was his favourite phrase. You're different to all the other slags uptown. Um, you know, he said they're all like, uh, they're all like Easter eggs. When you take the wrapping off, they're all plain chocolate underneath. You know, so he made me feel like this special person. You know, he made me not want to be going uptown, you know, with my girlfriends. Uh, you know, I was only 23 when I had Jack. So I was still so young. But yet he he made town and nightclubs and pubs seem like something that nobody really would want to go to to enjoy themselves. You know, it's not a place where you should be. Yeah. And it was just there. Girls and women were just there to be picked up. I, I think his attitudes of how you describe him, the way that he talked about women is actually very instructive about how he viewed women and how he felt about women. And it was very misogynistic, wasn't it, in terms of yeah. how he had described girls and women and some of your friends. And that's very isolating actually, for a woman, because in one sense, you feel that you're the special one. But in the other, he's making you think about your friend or, you know, a female that's around you in a very negative way, that they're too opinionated, they're too domineering, they're a slag or they're a whore or they're, mm. well, however it is that he's characterising them. And I remember you saying that he would do that with quite a few of your friends. Yeah, and I lost quite a few friends over the years because they didn't want to be in, in the same space as Darren so you know what he set out to do was to yeah he he, he became the, the jailer then and isolated me from friends and family um to a certain degree I mean he hated my mum and um you know even um, to be honest with you my mum hated him too because I think she could see an element of what he was like um not to the full extent of course but um there was something that she could never put a finger on but she she you know she she didn't certainly didn't like Darren but yeah he did he did isolate me well mums tend to have this sixth sense don't they about mm -hmm. someone and Having met your mum, I would imagine that her sixth sense did kick in and that he wasn't really who he or who she had imagined that you should be with. And that's putting it diplomatically because yeah. as, as events unfolded, he actually was 
a very different person, although you were starting to understand that there was a different side to him. And I, I think your 30th birthday, you went to Paris and it was your mum's suggestion that you go away and you thought that a break might be a good thing for you both. Um, but there was a suggestion about a sexually transmitted infection, wasn't there, that he had picked something up and he had said to you to go and get yourself checked out, but you didn't really put two and two together at that point of well, where did where did the STI come from? Yeah, and this is something that, you know, it was so obvious looking back now, but Darren had uh, his, I can I can hear the conversation now in my head, it's so clear. He told me that a friend of his um, needed to go to the, the gum clinic, which is a sexually transmitted disease clinic, um, because he had a sexually transmitted disease or some sort of warts that he needed to, to, to be seen. And um, Darren said, you know, um, I'm going to go with him because I, I've got something coming out of the end of my my old boy. Uh, he said, and I think it's from, from the soap. We've changed the soap. Now, Darren had sensitive skin, so me being naive. And over the years, him telling me that he'd never cheat on me, you know, he, he lived and breathed for me, you know, he wouldn't be like his, his father was, you know, he was going to be faithful, you know, all this stuff. So I never for one minute ever thought that he would cheat. And uh, so we went to the, the clinic and he came back and he said, oh, yeah, he said, I, I got this uh, slight infection. But they said, you know, that you need to take the tablets as well. Me being naive, phoned my doctor and said, listen, my partner's got these tablets. They recommended that I take them as well. Can I get a prescription? Which they done. I went and picked up the prescription, took the tablets and it was only years later when I phoned um, phoned the doctor and asked what they were for. And I said, listen, I know exactly when it was. And I told him the year and the day. And he said, oh, it, it was, for, it says on the, 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 the doctor's notes, a uh, patient phone, partner being treated for sexually transmitted disease, which is normally, uh, these tablets are normally given for um, chlamydia. Yeah. So all the while where he's talking about how women are behaving yeah. and <laughs> your behaviour. I mean, it's classic stuff, isn't yeah. it, that, that we now know is about projection and transference of don't look over here, look over here. Mm -hmm. But at the time, you just didn't even acknowledge it or think about it in that way because of the, the yarn that he had spun. And as you said, when you're naive and maybe you haven't been with lots of people and you're not worldly wise, why would you question that? Yeah, and especially when he's writing in, in my birthday cards, anniversary cards, you know, we're together forever you know you're my sunshine you're my every day you're my breath I couldn't live without you you know all this undying love written in these cards and bouquets of flowers you know bars of chocolate you know what you know why would I even think yeah that something else was going on or that he was being unfaithful yeah things tended to well it sounds like things got worse at home and uh, actually you didn't enjoy spending much time at home and you wanted to stay out of his way can you explain what was what was going on yeah so I, I was um, working five jobs at one time basically just so uh, I didn't have to spend much time in the house with him when he was home um so I, I had all these jobs hairdressing looking after old people 
cleaning for the, for a doctor's surgery, hairdressing as a mobile hairdresser, as well as working in a salon. And, you know, Darren, Darren's life revolved around Darren. You, Darren used to go training five nights a week in the gym. He'd go out on the weekend with his dogs hunting, uh, which was absolutely fantastic. So he'd go out on a Sunday morning, maybe four or five o'clock in the morning and come home maybe nine, ten o'clock at night. And that was just bliss. It was lovely. But the the less time that I could be in the house with him, the better. Um, you know, and when he used to go to the gym, he used to pop in his friends for a cuppa on the way home, which was great again, because often or not, I was in bed before he'd come home. So, yeah, so I tried to sort of, like, not have much time with him in the house, as little as pos- possible. And that talking about the, the 30th birthday, you you did write in the book that you did get a 30th birthday card from him and it said, you know, the most perfect girl on the planet. So as you say, these, these grand declarations, but actually at home, he would say that you're a lazy bitch and a slag and he'd spit at you. If you didn't do things in the way that he wanted them, then he would say very different things. Yeah. So he, he had a little bit of OCD going on. And I knew he was like this when he was younger. He said taps in the bathroom had to be polished and stuff, weird stuff like this. Um, you know, and, and I kept, you know, our household tidy, you know, because I was, even though Darren was father to Jack, I was single parent really basically because I mean, Darren did nothing. And I'll never forget a time when, when I first was going to take Jack in a pram and I had very little sleep because Darren wasn't sharing the night feeds with me. He actually slept in the next bedroom with Josh. So I was doing all the night feeds and I can remember coming downstairs the one morning to take uh, uh, Josh, sorry, to nursery um, or preschool, put Jack in the pram, went to go out the house and dad said, oh, hang on a minute, let me get the camera. And I'm thinking, oh, great, he's going to take a picture of me now. And my eyes are really puffy because I haven't had much sleep. And he actually handed me the camera. He held the, the pram and I had to take a photograph of him, which I did. Then, then he said, you are, you know, go off, go off to the school. And that was it. You know, he just wanted this picture of the doting father holding the pushchair as if he was going somewhere with Jack. Um, and we take the picture of him and then him to crack on doing whatever he was doing. But um, I mean, I done absolutely everything. As you said, you know, he used to call me a dirty bitch if things weren't done properly. But Darren liked things a certain way. So for instance, the rug in the room, it had to be hoovered with a nozzle to make these patterns in the rug. Um, it was honestly, looking back now, it was absolutely bizarre. And another time he had uh, put Weetabix behind the kitchen bin. I mean, they weren't even visible to the naked eye. And because I'd never pulled the bin out and hoovered these Weetabix crumbs up, then I was a dirty bitch. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that, that those two things, the fact that he wants you to take the picture of him as if he's going to the the school where you're doing that, that shows his image management was very yeah. important to him, but you're the one holding the five jobs down and doing everything around the house, but him hiding things for you to find. These rules and regulations that we hear about, oftentimes with coercive control and you have to behave in a certain way, you have to do things in a certain way, but the double standard normally is that it doesn't apply to them. But the name calling that if you do break one of their rules that appear from nowhere, um, it sounds like you were really having to live 
under his rule and his kingdom. And whilst you were doing all these things, raising two children, keeping the house clean and tidy and taking the children where they needed to be, holding down five jobs, what what was he doing so in the day? He, and Darren, hated work. It was a mugs game. That was his favourite phrase. It was a mugs game. Um, so when he actually worked on the door, he was actually claiming sickness benefit as well. So his job on the door was cash in the hand. Any Anything Darren could do to get money, any schemes he could do to get money and to do as little as possible for, he would. Um, so he worked minimal hours. He would just work what he had to work. He'd never work any overtime because, like I said, it was a mugs game. Um but then Darren always used to say, you know, I wish I was around in the 60s so I could have been that gangster. I could have been, you know, um, you know, getting money for looking after people, you know, and he had a fascination with Ronnie and Reggie Cray. Um, and I've said to you before, you know, Darren took me on a day out one time and I'm like, you know, where do we go? And he said, Chinkford Mount Cemetery. And I'm like, what are we going to a cemetery for? He said, I, I want to go and put flowers on Ronnie and Reggie's grave. So he took me to London to the to the cemetery to to put these flowers on their graves. So Darren then started working. Um, he um, got his HGV license, a, a heavy goods license, a trucker's license, and then he started working for one of the the supermarkets delivering goods. Um, and like I said, Darren was always looking for a way to make a quick buck. And Darren then started stealing stuff off his loads. So yes, the date to the cemetery, very unusual sort of date. And I remember you saying that he was fascinated with true crime documentaries, that he would watch a lot of, you know, real crime programs as well, which again, you know, shows that he has interest, him saying that he wanted to be a gangster and some of the things that he was doing, which was skimming, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. But he was also a bouncer, wasn't he? A doorman for a while where he got into a lot of fights and he became the liability. He was definitely, yeah. What can you say he about that? He was definitely that? the liability. I mean, nightclubs would, would want him on the door because most people who come into the nightclub, um, you know, they seen him on the door and, and knew that, you know, they, they wouldn't be kicking off whilst in there. And if they did kick off, then, you know, they, they would, would be beaten up. Um, in the process um so Darren was very well known in 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 the the nightclub circuit um because of his sheer size and because he was handy with his fists um you know many a men used to be chucked down the stairs in the nightclub um many a men would go and try and press charges um but wouldn't carry on with it because they would be leaned on um and I used to say that you're like Teflon you know nothing sticks and that was basically it, you know, nothing sticks. sticks. And then I can remember one of the uh, nightclub owners phoned Darren the one day and said, listen, you know, we can't have you on the door anymore. You are a liability. I've just been to a meeting with the police, uh, sorry, a meeting with the chief constable of our local police force. And they said, if I hear one more incident with Darren Williams, I will personally lift him myself. Wow. And that's really important because he was known to police and he was known in the locality. You said handy with his fist, but he was a frightening individual. If he turned, people were scared of him. And that is a very important thing for everybody to understand. You're living with this guy who's six foot seven and over 20 stone. 
and men are frightened of him. And even the police, it seemed like that they would kowtow to what he would say at times. That when they came round, he'd say he'd talk to them after he had his tea and tell them to go. And I, I find that incredible. Yeah, I can remember one time we, we pulled up at the house and uh, Darren said, oh, that's the ID in that car. And I'm like, how do you know with CID? So I can tell. And I said, well, what have you done now? Nothing. And uh, so we went in the house and the door, lo and behold, the door did knock a couple of minutes later. And I was out the kitchen putting a jacket potato in the microwave for him, making his tea, because obviously he couldn't cook anything himself. Um, so I he called me in, Rachel answered the door. And I opened the front door and as I opened the front door and sort of stepped back so Darren could see who was at the door because the settee was positioned in our living room that he, you could see the front door and it was to CID stood at the door. And they said, oh, Darren, uh, we need you to come down the station. So with that, Darren leapt up and um, he said, I'm not coming down any effing station. I'm having my tea. And this police officer put his foot in the door because Darren went to shut the door. Darren opened the door, looked him straight in the eye. He said, get your effing foot out of my door or I will bury you in that bank. And the police officer did. And at that point, my my stomach just fell. And I thought, wow, you know, is you know, <laughs> if ever I'm going to go, who's going to get me out? Because even the police officer is doing as he is told. And then they said to him, when is a convenient time for you to come down? Unbelievable. You know, yeah. So there was no, he didn't have any fear of the police. That You know, they weren't, um, you know, even though they were in a power, you know, a position of power with the authority, they never exercised that authority. So Darren, again, was just bigged up even more because now he can tell the police to go off. Yeah. And that lack of accountability, that lack of fear of consequence was a major problem. And you can't have a situation where the police are kowtowing to someone who they've gone to speak to and want to question and then asking, well, when's a convenient time to you? I mean, they must have known what a big guy he was and they must have known that a number of them would be needed if they wanted to to question him. And he did have a criminal conviction at that stage for headbutting a paramedic. So they knew that he was violent and therefore they have to consider the risk and their own safety, but also to you. I mean, that's the other part. Yeah, and that all, and all the incidents that would have happened at a nightclub where he broke a guy's jaw and he had to have a metal plate put in his face all these other guys that have been flung down flights of stairs, you know, surely that's still on the intel with the police, um, whether there's been a conviction or an arrest or not. You know, they know what he is capable of doing. So, yeah. Absolutely. I think it's um, really concerning. And in particular, because by this stage, he'd started collecting weapons, hadn't he? And I, I don't know when that began, actually, but I do recall that you'd gone to Prague with friends, Brian and Anne, and Brian was sort of an older friend. He Darren would always say negative things about Anne because she was, yeah. as he called it, opinionated, a woman with an opinion, my goodness. But it was a, a time, I think you were at the airport, where he, he talked about wanting to buy a stun gun and CS gas, and he was showing interest in buying weapons. 
Yeah, so um, obviously reading, you know, Dan's nighttime reading was Donny Brasco, Al Capone, you know, uh, mafia, all the mafia books. And like you said, watching all these programs. So he, he did have a fascination with it. And he was done a bit of research and he was speaking to a couple of the guys in the gym. And they said, oh, yeah, you can buy anything when you go to, to Prague and places like that. And I can remember the first thing he wanted to do was to go to a shopping mall to try and find these little shops because you could buy it legally over there. And um, and Poland was another place as well. And we went to, to Prague and um, the four of us, and I can remember we were um, going up an escalator. And as we were going up the escalator, Dan was looking around for, for shops as we were going up the escalator. He clocked this shop with all army stuff and weapons, and that was it. You know, we were running back down the escalator, um, Darren dragging me back down the escalator because he'd seen the shop. Um, so we'd gone in the shop, and, um, you know, he ended up with CS gas, telescopic truncheons, stun guns. Uh, he ended up as well, I don't know where he got it from, a tutu pistol, thumb um, cuffs, handcuffs, all the flick knives all the flip knives you could get. Um, he just had this arsenal of weapons. And none of this bodes well. Anyone collecting weapons like this, of course, they're huge red flags that people should be paying attention to. Not always easy to spot at the time in one sense, but of course, when you join all the dots together, the morbid fascination with criminals and particularly mafia types and organised crime um, but his behaviour, this losing his temper just on very small things that he would flash red with. And there were times where he would do that in front of other people too. It wasn't just about what he was doing at home. And so it is about this public facing how someone behaves. And with him, there's no, there wasn't any accountability. No one could hold him to account or to stop him. And here, here he is buying all of these weapons. So we're going to pause there for now because I'm going to bring you back to tell us a little bit more, Rachel, about uh, post-Prague and what happened because unfortunately there's more to what happened. This occurred over a number of years and for my listeners, I really want them to hear step by step what was going on. It's not just about one event and I think too often the media just report on one event that might be you know, hugely catastrophic as if that just came out the blue but it's really helpful to hear you talk about step by step what was happening and who knew what at the time, because actually a lot of people did know him and did know him for violence. Okay, so I'm jumping in here. Yes, I want you to hear things as they unfolded and not just about the attempted murder when William shot Rachel. We need to hear about what was going on before the nuanced and granular detail in order to understand all the intervention and prevention opportunities, and there were many. And isn't it ironic that Darren was into true crime? Learning as he goes, because that's what perpetrators do. They learn their tradecraft, and so we have to take care not to educate them, and it's a real balancing act. Well, it should be. And what about the fact that he was a bouncer? who created more problems than what he solved or de-escalated. You see, that's instructive to me. He liked the power and control. He was described as being handy with his fists, and people were scared of him. 
Well, he was six foot seven and over 20 stone, and he was known to police for violence, and he collected weapons. Very clear red flags where they should have been when domestic violence is reported, when a woman reports that she's feeling fearful and that she's scared. And so remember these things as Rachel tells us what happened next in part two, which will drop next week. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>